everybody. Oh, yeah, it's happening all along the beautiful shores of Lake Michigan. Meaningful, life-changing moments all around the world. Health Quest Radio goes airborne wheels up. Quest Radio proudly presents Adventures in Health with your host, Dr. David Kolbaba. Hi, I'm Alex, and you, well, you're right where you're supposed to be. You're listening to America's number one health news and science show. Our adventure guide, he is ready. He is the voice of integrated preventive health care in our nation today. He's the clinical director of our West Dundee offices. His story will show he is a man before his time, a real trailblazer. My friend, my partner, and my favorite radio boss, here's our host. Dr. David Kolbaba. Hey, Dr. K. How you doing, Alex? How you doing? And how are you on this special edition of HealthQuest Radio? We've got a two-hour show coming at you, and let's get to it. If there ever was a radio show uh, to gather around, grab a chair, and maybe put on your thinking caps, well... It's this one, because today we're flying into the eye of the hurricane, the coronavirus crisis, we're calling it. Is anyone listening? That's our emphasis today, because, well, with us today is a doctor who is who's regarded as this nation's top crisis care physician, along with one of his cohorts who, together with a growing number of physicians, have discovered what some in the medical field believe is the most appropriate and effective therapy for this COVID-19 pandemic. Interesting, too, that, uh, well, this very safe and effective treatment regime is not being fully utilized due to a self-serving bureaucracy, in my opinion, that with all of its suffocating tentacles hamper, impede, and as I say, hogtie conscientious health practitioners in our healthcare community today, especially those who want to fully utilize this life-saving treatment. And today we're going to be speaking with a couple of them today, hoping to get the word out so more lives can be saved through this protocol that uses common sense strategies that really work. Some of these things you may hear today may frighten you, maybe anger you, but perhaps, well, maybe that's where, when, and why changes can be made. It's when our passions are put to the test that more can be accomplished in the end. You know, the Bible tells us that the truth will set us free. In the New Testament uh, book of John, uh, chapter 832, it says right there, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, my hope and prayer today is that the truth will set us free and will help lessen some of the burden, maybe some of the anxiety associated with the situation that we're finding ourselves in in this nation today. Maybe help, perhaps, uh, stir your thoughts. Well, let's get with it. With us today is Dr. Paul Merrick, Chief of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine in the Department of Internal Medicine at Eastern Virginia Medical School. And Dr. Merrick, I know some of your peers regard you as the top critical care specialist in the United States today. And I'd love to get your take on what you and four of your cohorts have been learning in the latest treatment of COVID-19, a very intriguing treatment strategy to help us stem the tide of this viral pandemic. Can you shed some light on this for us, Dr. Merrick, and why it's so time sensitive? I think, you know, I think unfortunately many patients die needlessly. And I think the reason is, is you, you have to treat the disease the patient has, not the disease you think they have or you want them to have. And I think there's a general misconception, misunderstanding 
about this COVID-19 disease. Now, obviously, I think the understanding is evolving with time, and day by day we learn new stuff. You know, the time course we understand really well, just to clarify that. So most people who get the virus recover and do fine. Others obviously have a, a pretty significant infection and others die. And, you know, obviously the question people ask is, why? So I think it's comorbidities and age, but I think the key is the host's immune response. So people aren't dying from the virus. They're dying from the host's immune response. Mm. And I think that we are all genetically pre-designed to, to determine how we respond. So some people have a very exuberant immune response and others less so. Mm -hmm. So the first thing is, it's actually the patient's immune response, which is actually causing this terrible disease. So they get, you know, the patients who really progress, develop what we would call a cytokine storm. They get this massive outpouring of inflammatory mediators, mm -hmm. which causes the inflammation and the organ injury and at the same time activates the coagulation cascade. So if one kind of appreciates that, then, you know, the obvious thing is you have to do what you can to down-regulate the storm. You have to mm. put water on the fire to dampen down the storm. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that people, you know, who developed respiratory failure, people were treating these patients as if they had... ARDS. Yes, acute respiratory distress syndrome. Yes, and okay. I think that's a major mistake. Mm. These people don't have ARDS, and I think we're appreciating that now. And if you treat them for ARDS, you're actually going to cause ARDS. Wow. So what we've learned in the last 20 years, paradoxically, ventilators can actually cause acute lung injury mm. and cause ARDS because they overdistend alveoli, they rupture alveoli, they cause inflammation. So many of these patients actually who, who don't really have ARDS are put on a ventilator, treated as if they have ARDS, mm. cause ARDS, and the patients die from ARDS. Well, wow. And I think the third piece is that part of the problem with this hyperinflammatory state is they activate coagulation, so they form both micro and macro clots. So, you know, to, in order to deal with this issue, you have to deal with the hyperinflammatory state. Mm -hmm. You have to deal with the coagulation as well as trying to deal with the virus, uh, if that makes some kind of sense. No, it doesn't. What's, what's sad, most of America's watching people like Dr. Anthony Fauci and Dr. Deborah Burke, who just a couple of days ago stated that anybody who's found to have the virus, it will be determined that they died of the coronavirus, even though they may have had another condition brought on by the, the respirator itself. Isn't that interesting? Yes. So, you know, I watch this show on TV every day, or I try not to, yeah. <laughs> and the, the emphasis has been on testing and, you know, flattening the curve. They haven't really spoken about what this virus does to people and how to mitigate against what it does to people right. and how to prevent them getting really sick. And I think because of that, you know, Americans are confused. 
physicians are confused. They don't really understand this disease. And one of the things I noticed, too, it's all about how many respirators you got. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, that's a little late if you're in need of a respirator, be intubated or whatever. You're absolutely right. What you actually want to do is do whatever you can to prevent them getting on the ventilator. Once they're on the ventilator, the mortality is really high. Mm. We think maybe 60 to 70 percent. Wow. And the duration of ventilation is really long. So by preventing them going on the ventilator, mm-hmm. it's, it's a double win because they're not going on the ventilator, they're not getting the ventilator-induced lung injury, mm-hmm. and then you're reserving the ventilator for those patients who really do need a ventilator. Absolutely. So there is a proportion of patients who do crash really quickly and do need the ventilator. But you kind of want to reserve it for those who really need it. And then when they go on the ventilator, you need to use very gentle mode of ventilation. So start us out on your protocol, which I was so fascinated to hear about it, because number one, it seemed to get to it sooner. It seems to be more conservative, and I would say in some ways more proven to those in the scientific community. And for people like you, it seems to make sense for you. Yes, I mean, I think what you want to do, so, you know, obviously I think people who have COVID and have flu-like illness, you know, you want to do what you can to prevent them progressing. And I think there's simple interventions like vitamin A and vitamin C and good nutrition, which hopefully will prevent them progressing. Hmm. However, once they develop the very first signs that they're actually not doing well, you have to really aggressively intervene to prevent them progressing to respiratory failure Mm -hmm. and progressing to the point where they need the ventilator. So, you know, we use a multi-pronged approach. I don't think there's going to be a single magic bullet Mm -hmm. that cures this disease, but I think you need different agents and different approaches which deal with all the components. So you want to downregulate the inflammation, you want to prevent the oxidant injury, you want to prevent the clotting. So that's why we came up with this approach, which really was an adaption of what we were doing for sepsis. Bacterial sepsis, in a way, has many parallels to this disease in that in bacterial sepsis, it's really the host's response, which is out of control, Mm -hmm. which is really quite similar to this disease, Uh, hence the overlap in the treatment strategy. And I understand that you yourself believe in this protocol that you're talking about. The acronym is HAT, which stands for what? A hydrocortisone, ascorbic acid, vitamin C, and then thymine. And you mentioned that this protocol should be introduced within hours of a person entering a hospital. Yeah, so, you know, I think that the people who are being admitted to hospital are the people who are sick, really sick. You know, the people that just have headache and fever and fatigue and muscle pain are staying at home. The people that are being admitted to hospital are the ones that are having the respiratory complications. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the trigger to be aggressive so that you prevent this escalating out of control. Well, that's Dr. Paul Merrick with the cutting edge protocol that's proving to be a better, safer, and more effective treatment for COVID-19. What are his thoughts on hydroxychloroquine? That's my question. And by the way, just to let you know, this therapy has saved the life of an emergency room doctor, as reported uh, in the news, uh, just a couple of days ago. It's HealthQuest Saturday morning. You're listening to Chicagoland's longest-running health, news, and science show with your host, Dr. David Kolbaba. to health 
SouthwestRadio.com. If we're always guided by other people's thoughts, what's the point of having our own? This edition of HealthQuest. Thanks for tuning in. It's no mistake that you've tuned into Chicagoland's longest-running health news and science show with me, Dr. David Kobaba. From America's Daily Report with uh, Christina Aguio, American uh, scientist uh, Dr. Shiva, you've probably been listening to him lately, MIT graduate and much, much more running for uh, Senate, I believe. He shares his concerns with our current handling of this uh, viral crisis and uh, President President uh, Trump. Can you imagine what people would say? If we're always guided by other people's thoughts, what's the point of having our own? People who are not really advising him well on the science side of it, what, I, what I'm talking about is Fauci. And unfortunately, this guy Fauci has been in this environment for nearly four decades across multiple presidents. And he's essentially embedded into the scientific establishment, which has created an unfortunate lie about the immune system and an unfortunate lie about the solution to something uh, like this called the coronavirus, or more importantly, infectious disease, without any real emphasis, which is a real issue, about the fact that it is a overactive, dysfunctional, weakened immune system that overreacts, and that's what causes damage to the body. The truth of that leads to a solution which has nothing to do with mandating vaccines and shutting down the country. And that's what's unfortunate. Hmm. Well, we're uh, visiting today with Dr. Paul Merrick, a critical care physician, one of the top docs in the, in the game. You know what? Um, I'm wondering about uh, why it is, Dr. Merrick, that uh, if, if this protocol is so safe and effective... Um, why has it not gained as much traction as as you believe it, it should up to now? What do you think? Yes, yeah, so you ask a question that is so troubling. Um, and I don't says I just don't know, and it's completely perplexing. So I know that there are, you know, I'm sure that Dr. Fauci et al. get contacted by thousands of people with all kinds of suggestions, right. some valid, some not valid. But, you know, this has a track record. We didn't, you know, suck this out of thin air. Right. It's based on good scientific principles, and we think it, it can help. I think there are a number of reasons why people aren't taking this seriously. Mm-hmm. Firstly, I think the pure scientists are of the mindset that unless it's proven in a randomized controlled trial, mm. it's of no value. Mm-hmm. And I disagree with that because I think this is not the time to do randomized controlled <laughs> trials. Patients are dying. I think to give them a placebo is yeah. unethical. You have to give them the best treatment you can give them at this time. Secondly, we use ascorbic acid, which mm-hmm. is vitamin C, and because we do that, people think we herbalists or snake mm. oil doctors, mm. which is just so unfortunate because right. vitamin C is actually a stress hormone. And truly, remarkably, you know, the Chinese have a lot of experience mm. with COVID. They they were the first people to encounter this pandemic, and their data strongly. I mean, they're very adamant about this. The only two interventions which they believe actually changes the natural history of this disease. Mm-hmm 
is intravenous vitamin C and heparin. And they have an official document which states this. And it's completely perplexing to me that the rest of the world is ignoring what they found. We shouldn't have to learn from our own mistakes. We should learn from the experience of other people. Amen. Do you believe in any inclusion of hydroxychloroquine? We include hydroxychloroquine because we think they all kind of act synergistically. And it seems that, you know, anyway, in vitro, chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine have very diverse antiviral properties. Mm. I think people have overplayed its toxicity. So, for example, they talk about the toxicity to the eye. Mm-hmm. You know, the data from the American Ophthalmology Association tells us that you have to take it for seven years before you see toxicity. Wow. So we it. would recommend people don't take it for seven years. Mm. So I think it's completely overplayed. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, we don't have high-level data that it's effective, but we think in combination with everything else we do, it's effective. And what is quite intriguing is that zinc actually kills or actually inhibits the virus. There's data which specifically shows that zinc inhibits viral replication. Right. The problem is zinc doesn't get into cells really well. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine are known as zinc ionophores mm-hmm. and actually promote entry of zinc into the cell. Interesting, too, that these ionophores are compounds that help bring one substance into another, kind of like a, a Trojan horse, only for good, perhaps fighting cancers. Interesting, too, that these zinc-binding compounds, these zinc ionophores, are anti-cancer agents that are able to launch zinc into lysosomes that then are able to kill cancer cells. More effective cancer treatment and no terrible side effects either. Interesting, to say the least. Now, Dr. Merrick, how does melatonin come into the picture with this protocol? Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. Um, (laughs) So in our original protocol, we added melatonin because it's a very potent anti-mitochondrial oxidant. Mm -hmm. It's the only antioxidant which specifically targets the mitochondria, which are basically the powerhouses of the cell. Right. So we added it just because we could. We've subsequently discovered quite intriguingly that melatonin actually has specific antiviral properties against this virus. Um, So it's quite intriguing. So in addition to being an antioxidant, it, it inhibits viral replication. So quite astonishingly, all these medications we suggest, they all act synergistically and additively to both inhibit the virus and to downregulate inflammation and prevent clotting. Without getting into total detail, can you give us some general stats that you attribute to this particular protocol, Doc? You know, I think people at first were very skeptical, Mm -hmm. but I think people are now recognizing, you know, that what we were doing before was wrong. It wasn't working. So if what you're doing isn't working, you've got to change what you're doing. So I think there are a lot of people now that are beginning to accept what we're doing. And, you know, we hear every day, oh, this university has now adopted it and this university. So I don't know. I can't give you an exact number of hospitals and institutions that are using it, but it seems to be gaining greater acceptance. Mm -hmm. Um, I have some colleagues around the country who use it and are having really good results. 
That's great news, uh, Dr. Paul Merrick. We're going to be talking with one of your cohorts in just a, a little bit. That's great news. Love uh, to keep you a little longer if we can, too, Doc. I'm wondering about the long-winded use of these respirators, a.k.a. ventilators, a.k.a. intubation, as some of our listeners know about. Maybe the negative consequences, especially because the span of time for those with the Corona-19 and you say COVID-19 too, this whole thing is extending the, um, the, the, the workload on these respirators and maybe creating even more problems for human beings. More on that when we return. I want to let you know that uh, today we're simulcasting our show on two different radio stations. Some of you are listening to us on WYLL AM 1160, and some of you are listening to us on uh, WIND AM 560, The Answer. Today we have an expanded show, two full hours. Now, for our WIND listeners, you're going to stay right here, and we're going to blast right through the two hours of HealthQuest Radio. But for our friends uh, up the dial at 1160, you're going to need to scoot down the scoot down the the dial there to AM 560 for the second hour of today's show. Truly, uh, a life and death situation in this country affecting all of us, and maybe needlessly. Uh, Seattle emergency room doctor. I read this in the newspaper just now. An emergency room doctor who nearly died from COVID-19 in Seattle says he was saved by experimental treatment. That happens to be the one we're talking about today. Dr. Ryan Paget, 45 years old, was placed on a ventilator at his own hospital, Evergreen Health Medical Center. Last month, he was suffering kidney and lung heart failure when he was transferred to another hospital in a last-ditch effort to save his life, he told the Los Angeles Times. So just another testimony to this whole thing about vitamin C. Of course, the Nobel Prize winner, both Peace Prize and Prize winner Linus Pauling told us more about that. I also want to mention, too, that we've done four shows on the coronavirus, all in progression over the last few weeks, you got to go to healthquestradio.com and figure that one out because all of our shows are there for you to utilize. And I hope this is going to be a resource. Actually, our goal with this show today is to help these two doctors and others that are out there talking about this treatment that has no side effects. It's quite amazing. We need to get this. We need to get this out there. It's Dr. David Kolbaba. It's HealthQuest Radio. All of our radio show podcasts are available in the iTunes Store. Look under Adventures in Health. Download us on your iPod and take us with you. You are ready. To be taught the new way. Let's get back to our story today. Coronavirus crisis. Is anyone listening? You know, I, I got to say, I'm hard pressed uh, when I read the news. I actually heard this. This is almost like a quote where they said, in as much as many days. I don't know what they mean by that, as if they were talking about the uh, death toll. It says death toll increases in as many days. Now I'm thinking death toll? How can the death toll go down? If five people are dead today and somebody dies tomorrow, five plus one is six. I don't understand. And what's with our mayor getting her hair cut? What's, What's the deal? 
She gets her hair done, but you cannot. What, does she have some kind of unique corona immunity that the rest of us apparently do not have? Go figure. You know, what's what's the deal? What's with the whining governors and mayors? I just I just don't get it. That's why we've got to straighten some things out and tell the truth and, and, and let you in on some of the good stuff that's here. But there's this inhibiting force that keeps some of the safest, most effective treatment regimes a secret. While what we're already doing is known to be killing people. And today, critical care physician Dr. Paul Merrick is with us today. And Doc, I, I've got to get to this one. It's obvious that being put on a respirator is quite risky, but from what I understand with COVID-19, it's an e- even longer time. It's it's downright dangerous and can prove deadly, you think? Yes, the outcome once you go on a ventilator is shocking. So, you know, normally when patients go on a ventilator for respiratory failure, it's three or four days. It seems like with COVID, it's two weeks. One of the terrible problems is people who land up on ventilators Mm -hmm. is once they remove from the ventilator, they have a whole host of medical problems. So, you know, although they've survived ICU, they have terrible problems. So these are cognitive problems. They have post-traumatic stress disorder. They have nightmares. They have difficulty sleeping. And then they have severe physical problems of weakness and malaise and fatigue. So... Even though 20% of them actually survive, the quality of their life may actually not be good. Mm-hmm. This we don't really know yet. You know, we will accumulate data. But mm-hmm. I think the bottom line is you really want to do whatever you can up front mm-hmm. to prevent them deteriorating and landing up on a ventilator. And one would suspect that the longer you're on a ventilator, the more symptoms will occur. What about a damage to the lung itself? So the problem isn't really permanent damage to the lung. The more worrisome thing is is that when you're on a ventilator, you get profound muscle atrophy and loss of muscle Mm. bulk. It almost never comes back again. So these people remain profoundly weak. Right, and shallow breathing too. Yes, so it affects their diaphragm, their skeletal muscle. You know, it has profound systemic effects. Well, today we're visiting with Dr. Paul Merrick. Doctor, one last question. What, if anything, can those in the general public, all the people listening to our show today, what can those people in the general public do to help promote this protocol to maybe encourage, let's say, doctors or other health professionals, hospitals, or all those different health entities that are out there right now on the fringe? Yes, that's a really good question. I think we need to make the decision makers aware of the failure of the current system and that we need to look at alternatives and I think the more people that shout and the louder they shout Mm -hmm. then maybe our voices will be heard. I think it's a tragedy the number of people that are dying from this disease. Mm -hmm. My feeling is that many of these deaths are preventable if we Mm. treated them appropriately and i think we just need to shout to whoever will listen visiting with us today dr paul merrick chief of pulmonary and critical care medicine in the department of internal medicine at eastern virginia medical school thank you for being with us doc i appreciate that you know when i'm thinking about some of the stats let's say we've got a hundred positive cases and we're finding that less than two people die per 100 tested but let's say we add another hundred to the group because actually statistics are showing us now that a quarter of the population has been infected thus far. Now, we wouldn't have 
the idea that they could be or would be because we haven't tested them. But of the ones we've tested, we're finding that less than two people die per hundred who are infected. So let's say add another hundred. That means even less people per 200. And then let's say, let's add another, well, let's add another hundred to that group. Well, obviously two out of the 300 are not tested, but so what? We have the same amount of people who are dying. And I I just think it's worth thinking about that way and and starting to realize what the true facts are here regarding the COVID-19 virus here. Because I see we've got a lot of drama out there and I'm thinking the World Health Organization along with the CDC, they're helping to catapult us into a a higher, I say a higher drama uh, than we need to be living with. And I know the beaches opened up in Jacksonville, Florida, flooded with people trying to do the safe distancing, all this and more. Stay with us, would you? You're listening to Chicagoland's longest-running health news and science show with your host, Dr. David Goldbaba. All of our radio show podcasts are available in the iTunes Store. Look under Adventures in Health. Download us on your iPod and take us with you. You know, a few weeks ago, uh, we've been doing a series on the coronavirus, different aspects of it. I'll tell you more about that later on. But uh, think about it. Most of us are owning this thing through fear. And I know just having an upset in our schedules and such, it brings on stress. And I understand that. But we do not have to own this. And when we look back on this, we're going to see how foolish some of us have responded and some of us as practicing physicians and those in the healthcare field, how badly we reacted to it. And I do want us to keep our eyes wide open. And again, things that uh, begin in our careers don't always end the same way. And uh, we're going to hear from Dr. Shriva again. If you look at the typical MD, many of them go into wanting to become a doctor out of some noble service. But fundamentally, the medical school education is really a big pharma a medical education where the doctor is really trained, if this, then this. And the then is typically a pharmaceutical drug or some uh, harsh medical intervention. Now, if you look at someone like a Fauci and Bricks, they're sort of at the top of their quote unquote game, which means they're highly embedded into the big pharma model of medical education and the big pharma model of what the solution is. And that solution is typically a direct line from this disease, find typically a virus or a bug, and then recommend a vaccine or some harsh chemical solution. And most of that has to do with profiting the very, very big pharma companies. And so if you look at someone like Fauci, he's a guy who architected the big lie that HIV is responsible for AIDS. And it's a much deeper discussion, but he built his entire career on that, not talking about the fact it's the suppression of the immune system. When people's immune system gets suppressed, you you can react to all sorts of exogenous things coming in. And this has essentially been the modus operandi of people like Fauci for many, many years. But for him, this is a huge opportunity. And this this ain't his first rodeo. This is his second rodeo if you go back looking at the HIV AIDS, you know, fake causality. You know, to question is not necessarily to doubt. And as Dr. Paul Merrick just told us, and uh, we got Dr. Shiva um, given his take on what it's really all about. The real issue here is the lungs are being filled with fluid, and the fluid is occurring because of the overreactive immune system, which can really be addressed by IV vitamin C, high dosage. 
And that is not in the discourse. In fact, 80 to 90% of the people go on ventilators are dying. So this is essentially a death hmm. sentence that they're putting people on. The unfortunate handcuffed medical professionals get this. This is an opportunity, a huge opportunity. So then what ends up happening? That uh, COVID-90 gets blamed for just about everything. So if someone comes in, they have a pre-existing condition, someone with a chest pain, COVID-19, okay? And in fact, when hmm. someone dies, they do the test. Sometimes the test doesn't come back for 14 days. They're still putting COVID-19 on them. So you have mm -hmm. cooking of the books for two reasons. Hospital administrators get money for the COVID-19 mm -hmm. diagnosis, plus they also get kickbacks to what are called GPOs and PBMs for the ventilators. So there's, there's a total collusion going on, and it's not about at all about people's lives. So those critically ill patients, immediately they put them on ventilators. Hmm. And you know what happens with the stats we've given you so far. You know, coming up uh, next is going to be another uh, special guest uh, to give us his professional take. Actually, he's one of Dr. Paul Merrick's cohorts, uh, part of this group of physicians across the nation who are building some grounds together to get this protocol uh, laced into hospitals everywhere so that more lives can be saved and doing it more on on the safe basis. As I mentioned, to today we have a simulcast show between our friends uh, at 1160 WYLL and those who are listening on AM 560. We're extending our show today two hours. We're going to go another hour. So for those of you who are listening on WYLL 1160, you'll need to come down the dial to 560 AM 560 and uh, tune in for the second part when we interview Dr. Pierre Corey, who is also a crisis care physician in the midst of this stuff. And I think it's really great. As I said before, we have done some uh, very selected shows on the coronavirus. Now, I've tried to be positive, and I try not to rehash what you already know. And I thought it was very helpful for us uh, a few weeks ago to give you the three most important nutritional components that you could be using. And as you remember, when we talked to Dr. Merrick a few minutes ago, he said... So, you know, obviously, I think people who have COVID and have flu-like illness... You know, you want to do what you can to prevent them progressing. And I think there's simple interventions like vitamin A and vitamin C and good nutrition, which hopefully will prevent them progressing. And, and we did a show some weeks ago talking about that, three important components. And that was the show that was titled, There's No Place Like Home. And uh, we did another show uh, describing what viruses are and what they are not. That would be good to know. And you can go to our HealthQuest Radio website at healthquestradio.com. And there's at the top of that particular site, there's a button that takes you to Adventures in Health. And that's our blog site where everything that we do, everything that we've broadcast, we're talking thousands of shows, are right there for you. And the idea is that you'll get there and that as you listen to more of the truth, then what ends up happening is that you become clarified and more at peace. That's what I want to do for you. That's what I want for me. It's our two-hour special today, HealthQuest special, and our HealthQuest radio hotline, 800-794-1855, 800-794-1855. You can fast blast me during today's show with a question or concern. Uh, that's drdavid, Dr. David, drdavid at healthquestradio.com. That's drdavid at healthquestradio.com. Thanks for being with us today. We'll be right back. to healthquestradio.com.
interesting. Science is so blind sometimes, and I use science all the time. Science says that if we can't prove it, it ain't there. <laughs> it's laughable. Did you know one of the best curative measures that was used back in 1918, the flu pandemic that, uh, that washed over this country, killed thousands and thousands of people, is not being used now. And it could be used. And so I got to tell you about it now because this show is going to get everywhere and this information is going to get there. It's going to get there and people can use it. Little to no curative measures were effective back in 1918 and everybody was dying. But one significant option, one significant factor, one, just one was effective. And it was found that those who were severely ill and nursed outside, you see, they took the sick ones and they threw them outside because of their overcrowding inside. Let's get those that are close to death, let's get them a little closer to the graveyard. Now, I'm sure it was done out of respect, but they were nursed outside, outdoors. Those people that were taken outdoors and the hospital staff that worked outdoors recovered better than those that were treated indoors back in 1918. A combination of fresh air and sunlight seemed to have prevented deaths among the patients as well as infectious spread among the medical staff. And research shows that, that outdoor air is a natural disinfectant. But, but let's close the lakefront, everybody. Let's close the beaches. Even though fresh air can kill, it can keep the replicative process in, in, in viruses. It, it, can keep it, to, it can keep it to a minimum. You see, we, we don't want to destroy the viruses if money's being made on them. And I'm not trying to go there with some conspiratorial mumbo-jumbo thing with you today. But fresh air, it discombobulates viruses and other harmful germs. And equally, sunlight. What about sunlight, everybody? It's a germicidal. It kills germs. And it destroys viruses, too. In 1918, the worst places were the military barracks and, 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 and the troop ships. And you heard of one that's parked in Guam right now. Overcrowding and bad ventilation placed soldiers and sailors at high risk of catching all kinds of flu, including the one that swept through in 1918. With overcrowding, especially even on the East Coast, temporary open-air centers were built. And the same thing happened there. Did you know that the, the death rate was 40% lower, reduced to less than 13%, according to the Surgeon General of Massachusetts uh, State Guard? And it was learned that back in 1918 that low vitamin D levels were linked to more serious respiratory infections that raised the susceptibility to the influenza they were, they were fighting at the time. And then there's you and me. Then there's you and me. And there's us right now. And sunlight's free. And being outdoors used to be free. I say stay with us for the second hour. What do you think? Second hour of HealthQuest today. You got to go to AM560 if you're not there. <laughs> okay, we got more good stuff. Another special guest coming up. Another crisis care physician is going to tell us his take on this holistic approach using vitamin C. Stay right here. You're listening to Chicagoland's longest-running health, news, and science show with your host, Dr. David Kolbaba. You are ready to be taught the new way. 
to healthquestradio.com. Let's do it. Well, we sure hope our WYLL fans made it down here on AM560 to see simulcast today's show. You know, I was talking about in 1918, the sun and the being out in the air, it saved so many people's lives as compared to what we're doing now, cramped down and all that ghibli guard. My question, why is it those who are governing over us are setting such protocols for our personal protection? I mean, why? Why is being outside? And getting sun, why is that not a part of their instruction to us as a as a population? And, and and why was the lakefront closed down? And why did the governor of Michigan ban the buying of vegetable seeds that would that that would be needed to, to be planted outside because Mother Nature's not waiting for us and those seeds gotta get in there rather than be trapped inside twiddling your thumbs? Why have they outlawed farmers working in their field? And how is it that we can still buy booze? Or we can still get abortions. We can still buy lottery tickets. Yet we cannot gather safely with proper social spacing in an outdoor church function. Why can't those who have a, a lake home, why can't they go there? Why are they not permitted to travel to them? We're more likely to be outside versus trapped inside their house. What's with the restrictions? I don't understand. I guess that's why we have another special guest here today who's going to throw another log on the fire, Dr. Pierre Corey. And he's a critical care doctor who works a little north of here, cohort of Dr. Paul Merrick. In a world so recently turned on its heels, a very fascinating treatment regime streams out from this terrible corona pandemic. And to tell us more about this is Dr. Pierre Corey. He's the Associate uh, Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. He's here to tell us more about this discovery. Dr. Corey, tell us about it. Yeah, so I'm with a group of clinical experts, very experienced uh, critical care docs from around the country, one who's at Eastern Virginia Medical School, uh, another one who's in uh, Memphis in, in Tennessee, a very famous guy who's uh, studied uh, corticosteroids and critical illness, and, and, and then a couple of other veteran uh, ICU guys. And we, we got together because we've done uh, similar research and we have similar experiences in using a couple of uh, medicines. Mm-hmm. The group of us veteran critical care guys who feel very strongly that, there's, that there are effective medicines for this disease, but they're not being used. And so, for instance, in the University of Wisconsin, none, none of the medicines that I'm going to talk about are routinely used or has it been systematically adopted. It's hmm. it's in the treatment guideline, but it's only because it has a ra- considered to have a rationale, but it's certainly not a standard therapy at all. But it's, it's something I personally think would be helpful. So I just want to clarify the context for that. Can we uh, just talk on that just a bit when we think about what's tried and true? I mean, there's so many drugs, medications that are being used and they're sold as being tried tried and true. And I don't want to go deep on the subject, but I'm just curious about where that conversion takes place when something is on the trial and then it kicks into the domain of common use. That is almost an unanswerable question because this is my experience in medicine is that the history of, of medicines, for instance, the, the best examples when they started using clot busters for heart attacks, mm. they noticed in other things that we now routinely adopt as part of our treatment strategies, generally the time from when uh, first 
support comes out of efficacy of a treatment yeah. to the time where it becomes like part of a guideline right. is somewhere around 17 years is the number that's been told to me. So like medicine, by the time something gets standardly deployed, it takes a long time and a lot of trials. The second concept is most physicians will say that there's insufficient evidence to recommend such a therapy. And then that's where I don't, because I've never heard the definition of sufficient evidence. Mm. You know, I think it's a different definition for everybody. Got like it. for me, I see a compelling trial with a couple hundred patients with a profound difference. Mm. You know, even if the trial is not perfectly designed, I've never heard of a perfectly designed clinical trial, by the way. I'm, I'm what's called an early adopter. So I'm much more willing to adopt a therapy that shows promise mm -hmm. than, than others. Most physicians are very, very um, conservative before adopting a therapy. They really, really want to have proof. And because everybody's very, very concerned about uh, potentially adopting a therapy that might have harms. And I think that skepticism is well-placed around a lot of medicines. The ones that I'll probably talk about, the medicines that we're using, these are really safe and have been studied for decades. Yeah. And so we, we know what these medicines can do, and we know the many recognized harms to them. So it's, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a strange time to be conservative, I think. Yeah, got it. Now, I know we've all listened to uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, his concern about how long you do your clinical trials to support the evidence for using a particular uh, protocol. But what happened that you became interested in this protocol that we're going to talk about today? How did that happen? Yeah, so let me just introduce the medicines in the protocol that we think would be uh, critically important to yeah. treat a patient who's very ill with COVID. So in the severely ill with COVID, the group of us, we really feel from what we've been able to learn rapidly, as rapidly as we could over the last few weeks, from, mm. from I, I, I get so many clinical reports from doctors on the ground because I know a lot of doctors are from New York. I trained there. I trained with. I trained under a ton of guys who are fighting this on the front lines. And so I've been near constant discussions with all of them. And so I've learned a, a fair amount. And then I started to see some, a few really sick patients last week that rolled into our ICU, and I, I got an even greater feel for them. But what we think and what we've seen, and, and some of my colleagues have actually had much more experience treating, like uh, one of my uh, colleagues, Dr. Verone in Houston, he's, I think, up to his like 30th or 35th patient mm. um, that he's used our, our you know proposed protocol with. And he's He's reported excellent success and that they've all done very well. Uh, here's something I would like to have you speak to our general audience on. And it, it, it's a little bit of an offshoot, but I'd love to get your take on it. It seems to me that a big part of the discussion for the last few weeks is respirators, respirators, respirators. And I'm thinking to myself, uh, it's kind of like a friend of yours is in an accident. You get a phone call that your friend's been in an accident and they don't tell you much other than he needed two units of blood. Well, that two units of blood part of the story tells me that it's not a fender bender thing. And I think that when people relegate themselves to this respirator thing, isn't that a bit late? To start therapies once, only once you get on the ventilator? I'm just saying, isn't yeah. it? I mean, no, if that's the question, yeah. no, there's, there's no question that we think, um, this is, again, this is just our clinical opinion. We don't have evidence. Yep. I don't have I, studies to tell you it. that we're right. Got it. But we do have a lot of collective experience between yep. the group of five of us that are working together. I mean, yep. I, I mean, we have decades and thousands and thousands of patients that we're seeing, but... I mean, we're not confused that we think mm -hmm. that you need to start the therapy. Like, as soon as someone is showing any amount of organ dysfunction, yep. these very mm -hmm. high inflammatory markers that we're seeing, yep. we think that's when you would start steroids, blood thinners, and it, you'd pair it with ascorbic acid. Because ascorbic it. acid does a lot to control inflammation, um, especially in, in conjunction with steroids. And so we think that that combination of medicines... Mm -hmm. 
we believe that would dramatically alter the trajectory of these patients away from the ICU. Again, it's our hypothesis. That's what we think, and that's what we propose, and that's what we recommend. It's our rationale. What's so good about your rationale, it's safe to begin with. It's safe at the end. Uh, why not try? I mean, it's, it's safe and sound. I'm just, it, 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 sounds it's on, proven. it stands on pretty sound uh, yeah. biologic plausibility yeah. as well as experience. You know, I'll give you the other piece to this puzzle that as, as I've tried to figure out the world in the last few days, and this, these are just again, my private thoughts, but yeah. my opinion as to why this became like a worldwide calamity and, and really has almost collapsed uh, critical care systems across the world, um, I think it's because we went into fighting this disease with all societies recommending to avoid corticosteroid therapy. Mm. And I understand why they did that. You know, there's a lot of studies showing that patients with, with influenza who got steroids uh, appear to have died at higher rates. And so there's mm. a general conclusion that steroids are harmful in viral syndromes. Mm-hmm. The challenge is that a colleague of mine, actually in part of the group I'm on, he just published what I think is a really important paper where he reviewed the data from the SARS and MERS and H1N1. And what he found, it was with him and his group, what they found is that so many of those trials showing harm with steroids, they were all uncontrolled retrospective trials. And generally, the sicker patients got steroids. So, so the fact that they died more on steroids is mm. generally because by the time you get yep. that sick, that's when yep. they were being treated. And so yep. they found the two largest trials which controlled for all those confounders, yes. um, they actually show dramatic reductions in mortality with steroids. So I, I feel like yes. we might have done the wrong thing. I have to say I am to blame as well. When we started COVID, I was on a group trying to come up with some recommendations for our own hospital, and I was firmly of the opinion that we should avoid steroids early on in COVID. Um, but, I, I, you know, you got to move fast yes. here. I'm, I have yep. a different clinical impression now. I think this yep. disease is showing much more inflammation. I think that's what's killing the patients is the inflammation and not the virus. Right. And and I think our reluctance to use steroids may be contributing to these terrible mortality and, and morbidity rates that we're seeing. So, so Dr. Corey, uh, tell us about a recent study you published regarding the critical timing nature in cases such as septic shock and the use of vitamin C and how it parallels the treatment you render with corona. The therapies that we want to use is one is corticosteroids, so it's really an immune suppressant because right. we believe that a, a, a key uh, feature of this particular illness is, is a hyperinflamed uh, state. So it's basically what we're calling cytokine storm. Right. That has a really fancy term in the medical literature. In fact, it's very hard to pronounce, but yeah. I've been saying it so much lately, it'll maybe maybe it'll <laughs> roll off my tongue, but yeah. the actual condition is called secondary hematophagocytic lymphangiohistiocytosis. Yes. HLH. Yes. <laughs> for short, right? Because you can't even, it's an almost an unpronounceable term. So so I think that a lot of these patients, the, the sicker ones, are probably suffering this form of, of secondary HLH, and for which the recommended treatment for that is one of the mainstays is corticosteroids. The very inflamed patients, they should get steroids. Now, is that because their response mechanism is overworked? So now Absolutely. it's... Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's basically considered a dysregulated inflammatory response where there's just a lot of signaling between the white cells mm. and they're just becoming hyperactivated. Yes. And they leave the bloodstream and they start infiltrating the tissues. And so you get multi-organ mm. inflammation and multi-organ failure. And that's really the cardinal syndrome here is we're seeing you know these patients are developing multi-organ failure. And we think, again, these are theories. It's just our rationale. Yeah. Uh, this is just our clinical intuition and experience.
attitudes of these patients, the vast majority will likely benefit from corticosteroid therapy. Yes. The second feature that we've noticed, been very impressive, is that we're seeing more clotting, more obvious just clinical incidents of clotting to a severity mm-hmm. that really haven't been described clinically at the bedside. I mean, mm-hmm. a colleague of mine from California, you know, he just gave me one anecdote. Remember, in the levels of evidence in medicine, there's the anecdotal level, which yeah. is considered yeah. useless most of yeah. the time, but yeah. I think it's very helpful right now. But yes. in his first seven patients that he treated with ARDS, he found three of them had submassive or massive pulmonary emboli, which are clots that mm-hmm. get lodged in the lung. And that is a, a remarkable observation to see three out of seven. That, right. That's not a condition that we see with that incidence. Right. And, and that report from him is just being seconded uh, and, and repeated from mm-hmm. a lot of the doctors I know. They're just seeing lots and lots of clots. The Chinese really feel that everyone should be on blood thinners with this disease. And yep. so, so the folks that are having a lot of experience, many centers, in fact, just yesterday I got an email that apparently Penn and Emory and New Orleans, they all have blood thinners that are now standard parts of their protocol. So everything's moving really fast. So mm-hmm. so the first was the corticosteroids. The second is some some amount of blood thinner in, in patients at risk, you know, with high inflammatory markers or any signs that we have some blood tests that might suggest they might be clotting. And some people are using those as a guide. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the third would be intravenous ascorbic acid. Wait, what was that? Intravenous ascorbic acid, <laughs> Wait which a is minute. vitamin C. That's vitamin C. I, I try to say ascorbic <laughs> acid at all times just because vitamin C just has an odd, uh, it resonates oddly with some people. And, yeah. and so I try to differentiate. I always say this isn't grandma's vitamin C. Right. Um, this is, you know, hospital grade, pharmaceutically compounded intravenous solution. And it's delivered intravenously. And, and it has pharmacokinetics that are completely different from oral vitamin C. You know, you, you cannot achieve the physiologic responses that we see it achieving through oral administration. Exactly. That, that's a totally different thing. You can you can yep. gobble 100 tablets of vitamin C and you wouldn't get to what where we get to with the IV. Understand. So um, I'll just be clear. So that's the third component of the three things that we think would be a really powerful therapy or a protocol to use. You know, the ascorbic acid, I think you're interested in that. You know, that's actually been uh, shown in a large randomized controlled trial last year. It actually showed significant, very large mortality reduction when it was used in patients with mm-hmm. ARDS. Acute right? respiratory distress syndrome. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's yeah. the end result of yeah. most of the COVID infections that get to the ICU. The vast majority yeah. have ARDS. Yeah. So there is a trial showing that it's a there's a statistically significant mortality reduction. The challenge why that's, you know, again, going back to your original question, you know, how long does it take for that, you know, one trial to show that yeah. and then everyone to adopt it? Um, I don't know. Maybe we're on a 17-year cycle and this is year one. I, yeah, right. <laughs> I yeah. don't know. Maybe it'll take us 17 years, but it's not sufficient evidence for most. This world looks different to you. Well, you're listening to our to our special here at HealthQuest Radio, flying upside down. I don't think so. You know, I'm thinking about what you could be doing that might be better for you. You might be thinking, what could I do more that might be helpful to me? And what could I do a little less? And that's the feature of our next week's uh, radio broadcast here at HealthQuest. I want to give you some things that not only apply to this thing we're in right now, but I've always had the passion to help guide all of us, myself included, of course, towards things that could have multi-purpose. That is to say that whatever you're going to do for one, that maybe a one size once in a while does fit all, right? So some of the concepts that we could use that might be helpful for COVID-19, well before you get to a respirator, 
you know, understand they haven't listened to the show. Maybe if you tuned in a little bit later, you can go back to our archives here at healthquestradio.com and get some of the facts that we uh, referred to earlier in the show. And I know there are some things that you know you could do to be healthier and you're not. And so why do you want to learn one more thing you're not going to do? I mean, that's, that's how I look at it. So uh, maybe I'm being down. I don't know. But I'm just thinking about what we heard today. So next week, it's about do more, do less. And I also wanted to mention that you could email me or Dr. David, uh, Dr. David, Dr. David at healthquestradio.com. And we did talk about, and you will hear uh, specials uh, during our show, during the breaks here, one of them being on our vitamin C, our sunny C. Most vitamin Cs that you'd pick up at the store are going to be those vitamin C elements or substances that will depress your natural killer cells for up to four hours after you take it but not so with our Sunny C. Our Sunny C actually uh, helps to support and trigger, if you will, the natural killer cells that are there waiting to attack and pounce on uh, some of these invading organisms, and in the case of viruses, these biologic entities. You're listening to HealthQuest. Stay right here, okay? Okay. It's HealthQuest Radio. It's Dr. David Goldbaba. You are ready. To be taught the new way. Go to healthquestradio.com. back with um, critical care physician, Pierre Corey. Doc, you were going to tell us about the uh, study you did? I did a study with a group of us in the ICU, um, published it a couple months ago, actually, just before COVID started. And we, it was a retrospective study. We just looked at our experience using IV ascorbic acid in septic shock, which is a different condition than the yeah. ARDS. Many of them had ARDS, but this was septic shock because there's good data for septic yeah. shock as well. And what we found was a significant reduction in mortality in, in those who got it versus those who didn't. When we saw the patients that we got to early, like the patients from the emergency, because as soon as we saw the differences in the two patient populations, yeah. it doesn't take a, a genius to figure out maybe it's a question of timing. Right. And so then when we looked at it by time, mm-hmm. it was profound. Like anyone who got the treatment within six hours in that septic shock model, yeah. uh, nobody died. And if you got it between six and 12 hours, you did better, yeah. um, but, but not as good as the six hours. And then after about 12 hours, there was no difference. We okay. started the study because I got really interested in the therapy mm. after my colleague and friend, Dr. Paul Marek, who's very famous for the therapy. Well, he's both famous and infamous, because now he's a very uh, very accomplished guy. He's he's the number two published highest impact intensivist in the world. And so he was very famous in our specialty. But after he published a study showing these dramatic mortality reductions with it, people just thought, uh, you know, like like a lot of vitamin claims, that it was too fantastic to be true. And I find him to be the most credible and and fascinating physician around. I've been in fact, I call him a dear friend now because yeah. he and I have gotten very, very close over this. But, uh, but yes, I, he he took a lot of heat for claiming the yeah. vitamin. 
vitamin C can be like. But somebody somewhere's got to claim something sometime. I mean, I'm sorry, but when it comes to the average person who may need attention here, and they find themselves in the presence of a doctor like, 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 like you or your compatriots there, Doctor Corey, if a person did have a chance to choose which way the therapy wind is going to blow for them, I know what's going to happen in the main. Is there a way as consumers those people can be more empowered to maybe have some options that they don't think they have at this point in time? Oh boy, you're asking. I know. You're asking really good <laughs> questions. Ay, 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 How ay, do we ay. find um, doctors like you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, the, the clinical judgment of a physician at the bedside who's in charge or, you know, the attending physician in charge, ultimately, whatever therapy or choice of therapies that are going to be employed is going to be up to their clinical judgment. And because I'm going to reframe your question, like, is there a way for a non-physician, a patient, to advocate for treatment that physician might otherwise either have no familiarity with, might disagree with claims of its efficacy. I, it's a very difficult situation, mm-hmm. and, and I I would love to tell you that you go into the hospital with some papers under your arm showing these mortality results, right. and you hand that to the doctor, and he'll be like, oh, that looks good, and I'll use it. It just doesn't work that way in medicine. I yeah. I, I think you, you could, you know, I would just say you, you should bring it up, and you should just say, from what I understand, uh, these medicines have been long studied and are very safe and they might be important in helping me recover and and I would yep. like for you to consider using them yep. if based on what I said in this conversation makes sense uh, again mm-hmm. when you're talking to non-physicians it's not clear if they understand the rationale and can True. reproduce that to the doctor but I don't know your question's really difficult you know right. there is no history of patients dictating to doctors how they want to be treated that's just not something that happens but people like you in the profession in that hierarchy who are well respected you categorize do believe, and I'm putting words in your mouth, I believe, but you are you are basically telling us, Dr. Corey, that you significantly believe that improvements can be made and lives can be saved through the therapy that we just talked yeah, about. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm known by uh, the people that I work with as a guy who has really strong opinions, and if there was a time for me to do that, it would be now. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, that, that is a true statement. I, I really do believe that if you use these therapies and use them early, you know, the blood thinner, the corticosteroids, and you ascorbic acid, I just think the patients would do phenomenally better. That's just my belief. And I think the lay person would be more attracted to you, for you, to be their attending physician. And I've like heard this. that before. Yeah, no, <laughs> I've I, heard that before. So. <laughs> but, you know, there's a lot of variability in, 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 in what we think this disease needs. And yeah. so, you know, I'd like to respect my colleagues who disagree with me. And, you know, we, we are allowed to have disagreements in different viewpoints, and yeah. I can only offer mine. Dr. Pierre Corey, thanks so much for being with us today. appreciate your time. Appreciate it so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Great. Go to healthquestradio.com. Simply trusting my own beautiful blue eyes. You can't trust them anymore. Viral videos are designed to trick them, your own eyes. They're called viral for a reason. They're highly contagious and they'll make you puke. Go to healthquestradio.com. Over the last few weeks, we've been covering this topic. And for me, it's not about regurgitating what you what you know. It's bumping around your brain too much anyhow. 
If you took everything you've heard so far and what has landed on you, just imagine where you've gone with most of what you've heard. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking you didn't go anywhere good most of the time. And then being trapped at home in whatever iteration that you are trapped, <laughs> you know, you, 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 you do go stare crazy. And uh, I should say stare crazy. Uh, stare crazy, obviously. Um, as I mentioned, we've been uh, covering this, uh, this, this topic, and I'm trying to get it at angles to, to come in on the side of the brain so that you'll remember what might be more constructive for you to know. And some stats that come to me uh, is that, you know, 25% of Americans, they say, have been exposed, if not infected so far. Uh, interesting, too, the World Health Organization, which I take umbrage to, and you know the, the, the dark connection that they have with China, with them only paying, what, $40 million to be part of the World Health Organization, yet we here in this country are four, five hundred million to be a part of it, paying, again, more than our, our fair share. They recently declared, uh, the, uh, during the outbreak, they, they declared a, uh, a global health emergency, as you know, but at the same time, the same World Health Organization, where we're taking our lead, they, they basically officially said that it was not, that they were not recommending any international trade or travel restrictions. Hello. Now, some people think, if you've done any learning about the, the speculative thoughts about herding, in that the wave of the infection comes into a community, and it's there, and it creates its hubbub, and from that, we create the antibodies that are species-specific for this virus, and then it actually adds to the strength and the defense for you and anyone else around. And some people in the mix are saying, by golly gee whiz, maybe we should have let this thing just land on us straight out without the quarantine, without the safe places and the distancing and all that, and let it wave through the way that it was going to wave through and have that bell-shaped curve have a beginning and an end. But instead, what we've done with quarantine, semi-quarantine, because you have people like me that are considered essential, so we get to work, but you don't. And so we're in the mix, perhaps spreading this this viral uh, infection, and and so then what you have is the regular bell-shaped curve of two to maybe three weeks before it's done, but you got somebody starting it over somewhere in between, and that leapfrogging creates another fourteen to twenty-one day, and you can see with the the, the conundrum of it. Uh, and I also heard Dr. Phil is getting slammed on social media for downplaying the coronavirus, comparing the global pandemic to uh, car accidents, uh, drowning and other accidental deaths. So we know that those things have curtailed. The statistics have gone down. Um, but, but basically, he, he said, you know, people are dying. Uh, you know, we don't look at the fact that people, you know, die. 45,000 people die per year from automobile accidents, 480,000 from cigarette smoking, 368,000 from swimming pools, but we don't shut down the country for that. So he got in trouble for that. Um, the, the idea, it, it has to do with how we're interpreting what we're seeing, interpreting what we're hearing, and then to do something about it when it comes down to the personal side of things, because I'm saying it's not about a national health care program as much as it is about a personal self-care, self-care program that each of us can cut out, even in cases like this, this pandemic we're involved in. And so one of the ways you can do it is get copies of our previous shows and become more grounded in some of the facts of what's going on. You know, one of my concerns uh, that I've been talking about, too, is, is the 
the fact that uh, the immunosuppressant drugs that we're on are dampening our body's ability to uh, to protect us. And I mentioned that some of the most common common drugs that we see advertised on TV, like Humira, even something like chemotherapy, these are all immunosuppressant drugs. And drugs that are commonly uh, commonly used for hair loss are those drugs that can that can depress your body's immune system. Ulcerative colitis, they use drugs that do the same. All these uh, conditions like autoimmune diseases, psoriasis, systemic lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, even those who get organ transplants. Um, uh, and typically, people, you've heard of anemia, colorectal cancer, even Crohn's, uh, Crohn's disease, Hodgkin's, even something as common as inflammatory uh, bowel disease, uh, scleroderma, and on and on I go, all the common drugs that are used for that are all immunosuppressant, which means it makes you and I, no matter how healthy we are, more susceptible to this COVID-19. So as we travel through the show, I'm going to go back and bring out something that I think that you will want to hear with respect to some things you can do if you lend an ear and an eye to some information that's beyond scary. It's not going to scare you at all. It's going to open your eyes and say, hey, there's some things I can do at home if I did them a little more and just a little less. But you got to stay right here, okay? Okay. You're listening to Chicagoland's longest-running health, news, and science show with your host, Dr. David Kolbaba. Healthcare practitioner, 32 years and counting. He is a board certified clinical nutritionist with advanced degrees in clinical nutrition. And did you know this? Dr. Kobaba is one of only nine doctors in a whole darn state of Illinois that has attained this level of education in clinical nutrition. He's one of America's original health coaches. He is a board certified addictions professional. He is the founder and show host of HealthQuest Radio. Sometimes it seems like that, doesn't it, that we are flying upside down, don't it? Yeah, sure. I mean, because you, you, you want to be astute, right? Nobody wants to get sick, but, uh, well, you know, you, you, you don't want to be, but you are. And so I say figure it out a little bit. But you got to start with certain premises. And when you live by those premises, if you think they work for you, and I say, if they work for you, they really should be working for other people. 
And I was on the Dan and Amy show a week or so ago, and they asked me about my take regarding this. And I started even that interview with this premise. Check in with our friend, Dr. David Kolbaba. He is the clinic director at Quest for Health, and he's also the host of HealthQuest Radio, Chicago's longest-running health news and science show, which is broadcast right here Saturdays on AM560 from 11 a.m. to noon. So as you have seen this unfold over the last several weeks, what are some of the things that you've talked about and suggestions you've made in terms of how people should uh, contemplate this? I would like to start with a couple premises. It, it's not just one factor that we get ourselves infected or affected by any disease or condition, and it's not going to be one factor that's restorative of wellness or curative for any disease, condition, or infection. And then the second point I want to make to start us out is that it's my belief, and, and I believe it's proved, proved out by science, too, that all disease entities, especially infections of every type, they're predaceous. They pick on the young, old, weak, and slow. And these two premises, they're there. Whether it's known to us or not, they are in force. And so you think about it, that it, 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 that's either true or not, that there are forces out there that we have not discovered or phenomena that are out there that are still in force. They're still active. And we need to respect that they are there. And some of us at certain times, we witness that, certainly in the experience of living on this planet. But I'm all about helping to restore the immune function. And we talked about the immune function today with Drs. Corey and Dr. Merrick. And as you remember, Dr. Merrick said... But once they develop the very first signs that they're actually not doing well, you have to really aggressively intervene to prevent them progressing to respiratory failure and progressing to the point where they need the ventilator. Now, when I hear the news, I'm hearing all about get more respirators, go get get more respirators. And if 70 to 80, and, is, and Dr. Shriva even said up to 90% of people who are put on the ventilator, the respirator, intubated as they call it, that, that you're probably going to die. Downregulate the inflammation. Yep. You want to prevent the oxidant injury. Yep. You want to prevent the clotting. Get it? So we know what it is, but we're not being treated as if we knew. Now, that really scares me. And that's why we produced three or four shows on this whole topic. A few weeks back, our first show on it was to describe what viruses are, what they're not. I'm not going to do the show now, but I will tell you that viruses are not living. They are host-specific, host-dependent, and they need a host cell. They are not living. They are called biologic entities. They are not living cells. They do not make up anything that's alive. It's one of the reasons why they have to jump on our cells to infect them, and then they can replicate. And so we need to get ourselves into a place where if we help our immune function along, and by the way, we cannot change our age, but we can change the condition that we are at the age, your biologic age versus how long you've been on the planet. So somebody, you know, buy a car, it becomes a taxi cab. Somebody else buys a car and it becomes grandma's car. And you buy that car after a year's use, which one would you buy, grandma's car or the taxi cab? That's the kind of sense that we need to make when it comes to developing the kind of defense that that we need for our own bodies, not regarding just the COVID-90, but any and every disease and disorder. So that's one of the reasons why one of the things I try to do is help us defend ourselves by getting some of these concepts down. So in that first show, we titled it Swimming Toward the Deep End of Shallow Waters as we learn how to disown disease. And you know what I mean by that? This doesn't have to be your coronavirus. It doesn't have to be that. But when people say, 
my diabetes is acting up. My arthritis is acting up. It's a way of owning what we don't need to own. And in that show, we gave practical tips on how to better protect ourselves from every infection that's out there. And if that doesn't make sense, then I don't know what does. And it's not about turning the clock back so you can be young, because some of us say, I wish I wasn't old, because otherwise I wouldn't be affected by this here virus that's running around. And I say, no. If you were in better shape, you wouldn't have to worry about your age. If you were not on an immunosuppressant drug, like so many in America are, you'd be in better shape, you think? Now, when we get back, going to go over one of the subjects we're going to talk about next week's show, and I think you'll find it interesting. It's Dr. David Goldbaba. It's HealthQuest Radio. Let's do it. Go to healthquestradio.com. final segment of our show today. I appreciate you tuning in, especially if you stayed <laughs> the whole two hours. <laughs> That's good. I, I think we uh, added some information for you. Our HealthQuest radio hotline, for uh, any of your thoughts, concerns, or even questions, you can call 800-794-1855. It's always good to hear from you, too, at Dr. David, Dr. David, Dr. David at HealthQuestRadio.com. Now, next week, you got to stay tuned because we're going to mention when's the best time for you to get healthy. I'd say do it right now. Uh, and I would be thinking that more people are eating more than eating less during this time of uh, separation. What do you think? I think people are eating more now than they were when they were, were, uh, were working. I mean, that's, that's my take on it. Maybe, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. But uh, here's the point. Next week... We're going to talk about what what you can do that would be good for you, and you'll get healthier, thus defend yourself better against this and other infections now and in the future. And then here's some things, another list of some things that you could do that you might want to do a little less, and then that in and of itself would help build your immune system too. So I'll give you a couple things on the list just to give you a peek as to what's going to go on next week. So for instance, I want to talk about caffeine. Now, do you think caffeine, if you drink and eat more of it, that you're going to bolster and build your immune response mechanism that we've talked about today? Uh, What do you think? Of course not. I don't think so. And then another topic we're going to talk about is alcohol. Now, I'm watching all these different videos uh, during this quarantine thing, you know, and I'm seeing people, you know, with their glasses of wine, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Um, Do you think drinking more alcohol during this time is going to be better to build your immunity so you can defend yourself better? No, no, I don't think so. But that's right. I'm not trying to poo-poo everything. And what about um, overeating? Uh, we already do that in our country, which makes us obese, which is maybe the greatest predetermining risk for this COVID-19. And then the other one is dehydrate. Here's something you could do more. I don't want to hear that list. Yes, you do. Drinking more water. 
Did you know that water helps flush toxins and waste and, and bacteria from your body to f- help fight disease and infection, as well as it, it strengthens your immune system so you can can become sick less often because you've got the, 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 the best of both worlds. Also, when you're dehydrated, you tend to think you're hungry, so you eat more food. That's one of the reasons why you eat so, so much. And, and also, being dehydrated, not drinking enough water, I don't mean Coca-Cola to beer, and I'm, I'm talking water, causes fatigue. How many of us, number one, it's in the top three symptoms that I hear every day is, is, is fatigue. So that's just an example of some of the detail. We're going to go into greater detail on dehydration next week as well. But also, again, to build a list your protection system, your defense system, not just against the coronaviruses, but, but, but you know, to help you really uh, stave off all infections and then get to a better place of health and longevity. That's what HealthQuest is all about. Make your life an adventure in health, not in sickness or disease. If you need any help, um, counsel from me. If you want to do something about your, yourself and you want to join our health team and say, hey, I need to be part of this, why don't you do that? You can call our HealthQuest radio hotline right now at 800 794 800-794-1855. You know, in the last couple of weeks, our percentage kept appointments in our office was 100%, 100 85%, 100%, 85%, 100%, 100%. Our patients in our office know why they're there. I wonder if you know why you are where you are. <laughs> Have that greater sense of certainty. Call that HealthQuest radio hotline. 800-794-1855. You can email me at drdavid, drdavid, drdavid at healthquestradio.com. Again, that number, 800-794-1855. I thank you for listening, and God willing, we'll be back next week. See you guys next week. Be blessed. Be blessed.